pray together. Our God, we give you praise and thanks on this night. For you are so faithful to us. We thank you for your goodness that's evident in our friendships. We thank you for people who pour into us, who make us laugh, who help us to take things a little less seriously when we need to and a little more seriously when we need to. Thank you for placing us in a place like Calvin that values these relationships and is constantly encouraging us to go deeper, to become more real, to become more and more like you. And so we pray for our community that this will be a place of flourishing. We pray for our faculty members that you will bless their marriages, that you will bless their friendships, bless their relationships with people in their churches and the relationships they have with their children. We pray that these relationships will allow them to be good communal citizens here. We pray for our staff members. We thank you for their leadership among us, how many of them mentor us and shape us and show it what it means to live as disciples. We pray a blessing on their friendships. And God, we pray for our students. As we're in seasons of transition all the time with friends that go off for a semester abroad and we have to figure out how we're gonna negotiate that or friends from high school that we feel like we're not quite as close to and yet we're not quite sure what's next. And some of us are looking at leaving this community and leaving friends. And we don't know how you're gonna provide. And so Lord, help us to be assured that you are a faithful God and you are generous. And so for those among us who are lonely, we pray for friends, maybe one friend, someone that we can trust and love and laugh with. Lord, you are so good and so generous and you want these relationships to flourish for your glory. And so we pray that in the preaching tonight, in the reading and proclamation of the word, that you, Holy Spirit, will stir us up toward good friendships. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're doing a four-week series on relationships. Week one was relationship with? Last week was relationship with? This week is relationship with? Next week is relationship with? More than friends, yes. That's exactly right. Yes, yes. And if you were here the first week, you remember that when we looked, with, looked at the relationship we have with God, we said you can be so big in discussing the relationship with God and to bring it down and to make it really practical and to know what God looks like with skin on, we looked at the relationship between Jesus and Peter. And we looked at how Jesus was always moving toward Peter. And he was moving toward Peter with the purpose of moving Peter from death to life. That was his goal. That was his intention. And as we move through these other relationships, that's actually what God still has as his chief design. That he uses our parents, hopefully, to show us what a relationship with God looks like, to show us that God is always moving toward us and to help us move from death to life. And that's actually his purpose in our friendships as well. His purpose 
We, I mean, we use words like Christian community, and you know, we've, that's kind of a buzzword around here, but the real purpose that God has in mind is that our friendships flourish in such a way that we are constantly moving each other together from deathly habits into life-giving habits. That's the goal of Christian friendship, to move us from stuff that'll kill us to stuff that will bring us life. And you can see this is a theme across Scripture. Some of you may know the story of David and Jonathan, good friends who are willing to sacrifice for the sake of the other. Some of you may know the Proverbs that talk about friendship. As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. The righteous choose their friends carefully, for the wicked will lead you to destruction. The wounds of a friend are valuable. There are Proverbs that point to this idea that friendship is to move us from death to life. And of course, Jesus didn't just have a friendship with Peter. He had a friendship with a bunch of motley people. And he loved them and he lived with them. And he could have been a guru living, you know, on a high mountain and having people come up to him. But that's not who God is. Jesus moves towards people. He lives in relationship with people. He understands what it means to get really annoyed with somebody who snores. Right? He knows that reality. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but some of you know that reality. Jesus understands what it means to be an intimate relationship. And we can see this in the early church because it's easier for us to think of the church as it is now, which is like structure and ecclesiology and we have all these systems and there's this track for ordination and certain people hold office and this is all the way it is and this is liturgy and this is how it looks. But in the beginning, the early church was really about how do I be friends with people? That is the basic bedrock of the early church. I'm a Jew. How can I be a friend with a Gentile? I don't know how to do this. I'm a Gentile. I don't know how to be friends with a Jew. I'm a man. I don't know how to be friends with a woman. I'm a woman. I don't know how to be friends with a man. I'm a Greek. I'm a Barbithian. I'm a Barbithian. I think I just, I just made up a new ethnic category. <laughs> I'm a barbarian. I'm a Scythian. I don't know how to be friends with each other. They had to like figure this out. Barbithian. Someone's going to tweet that. So at the very bedrock, as the early church is trying to figure this stuff out, what they're really trying to figure out is exactly what we try to figure out when we move into a dorm. It's like, how do I get along with all these strange people? Right? That is the early church. The early church is like a dorm. That's tweetable. (laughs) Early church is like a dorm. All these people are thrown together out of their common love for Jesus Christ, and they have to figure out how to live together. And so when Paul is writing to the early churches, he's laying down behaviors. He's like, these behaviors will lead you to death, and these behaviors will lead you to life. So all y'all got to move from these behaviors over to these behaviors. All y'all together got to help each other out on that little project, and that project is what we call church. That project is what we call Christian community. That project is what we call friendship. So turn with me to Colossians 3. Colossians 3, page 957 in your pew Bibles. Verse 
Y'all need a Bible? Noah, my friend. No, I need a Bible. There was one right there. Thank you, Trey. All right, Colossians 3. So Colossians is a book that says Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Jesus Christ is in charge of anything. He's in control of everything. He pulls everything together. So if you're going to be in Christ, there are some things you have to have, and there are some things you shouldn't have anymore. And we're up to the part where Paul says, here are the things you should not have anymore. Verse 5, chapter 3. Put to death, therefore, whatever in you is earthly, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. These are the ways you also once followed when you were living that life. But now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have stripped off the old self with its practices and have clothed yourself with a new self, which is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of its creator. And that renewal, there is no longer Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free. But Christ is all and in all. Let's just stop right there. So Paul is saying, these are the behaviors that you need to leave behind. You need to leave these things behind. And you can think of them a bit in categories. So the first category, fornication, impurity, passion. These are all things that turn our sexual desire away from health and toward sickness. Sex outside of marriage and impurity and passion for things that we shouldn't be as passionate for. And so a question to ask is, are the people in my friendship group, the people that I'm hanging out with, the people that I'm friends with and I'm following and I'm paying attention to, are these people who are in any way stuck in the cycle of death on these issues? Are the people that I'm hanging out with, do they, do they speak crassly about members of the opposite sex? Do they speak crassly about people to whom they're sexually attracted? You see, the first category Paul is looking at is how do the people that y'all hang out with, how do they treat people that they're sexually attracted to? For most of us, people of the opposite sex. How do they talk about them? How do they treat them? When it's all one sex in a particular room, what language is happening around others? Do they essentialize people down to body parts? Do they pass around the copy of the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition? Do they see a certain image in the Commons Long and think that's hilarious? Is there impurity there? Does sexual innuendo reign and you can see who can be the wittiest at coming up with the right turn of phrase? The beautiful thing is that sexual desire is a gift of God, and it's 
its route, its path, is to lead us to life, to lead us to life-giving. That's where it's supposed to go, but it so easily gets off. And if we're in a friendship group where it gets off repeatedly and it's always going back, it's not so long where we forget what life looks like. And so Paul says, take a look first as to how y'all are talking about people to whom you're sexually attracted. How are you acting toward them? Are you preparing yourself? Are you anticipating living a holy life? Or are you much more comfortable with impurity and fornication and passion? Then there's the second category. He says, we're also supposed to put together evil, put to death evil desire and greed, which is idolatry. So if the first thing to assess in our friendship groups is how do we talk about people to whom we're sexually attracted? The second thing to assess is how do we talk about stuff and acquiring and materialism? Do you have somebody in your friendship group who's majoring in a particular major and they're doing it because they know upon graduation this is going to put them in a certain earning bracket? They don't feel particularly called to this area. They can do it well enough but their sole reason for choosing this to study is because it will allow them to drive a certain make and model of BMW to their 10-year high school reunion. Or is there someone in your friendship group whom every time she gets bored or lonely, you know that she is online shopping and she's looking for the next thing to put in that shopping cart to try and fill it up? See, Paul says we need to be aware of these behaviors in our communities because they actually reveal our idols. They reveal what's most important to us, that we are seeking after things to fill our hearts. And he says the truth is your heart is an idol factory, which is what John Calvin says. It just manufactures idols all the time. And if you're not aware, and if you're hanging out with someone for whom this is a primary value, before long that's going to be your value and the belief that God can totally fill you up is going to be overwhelmed by this idea that you need more and you cannot be satisfied with enough. So how do your friends talk about people they're sexually attracted to? How do they talk about money and materialism and getting the next big thing? And then the final is, how do they just treat other people? So if you look at verse 8, Now you must get rid of all such things, anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language from your mouth, and do not lie to one another. Now those first three can seem like really the same thing, anger, wrath, wrath, malice. But what he's getting at here is the first is really a hot temper. Somebody who's got a hot temper, they just go off really quickly. My friend Neil Planiga, you read his book, it's called Engaging God's World. My friend Neil Planiga says there are really two good character tests. I'll tell you the first one now. When you're trying to decide if you're going to go into business with someone or if you want to you know, live with somebody off campus in the next year or you want to date a person, a really good character test, whether they play this sport normally or not, is to take the person golfing. <laughs> he says because even in the course of nine short holes, your companion is going to miss a shot. And how he or she responds to the missed shot will reveal a great deal about his or her character. 
If when they miss the shot, they pound the ground with a club, they swear, they storm about, they tell you, you know, the weather's bad, whatever, they just, they're hot-tempered. He says, that's not somebody you want to go into business with. It's not somebody you want to date. It's not somebody you want to hang out with long-term. Because they're hot-tempered. And then this idea of malice. To be malicious is to seek someone else's ill. And some of you have friends who kind of keep you on tenterhooks. You're not really sure. Do they like me? Do they not like me? Some days they're really kind toward you and they invite you over, sit at my table for lunch and you have a really good conversation. And the next day they see you on the path and they walk right by you as if you didn't exist. And you're like, I don't understand what's happening. There's malice in that. There's meanness. Some of you have seen the movie Mean Girls. You understand. That's, that's malice, right? And we can poke fun at it and we can play about it. But the truth is, some of us have lived through that kind of stuff. That malice, that in, I'm going to intentionally mess with you to make your life more difficult. And wrath is just somebody who's irritable. The, the Greek has the sense of like the, they're churned up all the time. They're never content. They're not settled in their own skin. Anger, wrath, malice. And then the next ones have to do with how we speak about each other. If you're in a friendship group and a couple of the friends go off, do the friends who are sitting around the table speak ill of the people who just left? Do they slander them? How do the people in your friendship group speak about God and church and Christians and Christianity? Is there filthy language that comes out? Language that's unkind, language that doesn't build anybody up, that language that actually tears people down? Do you have anybody in your acquaintance who lies to you? Who does it like this? They say they're going to meet you at a certain place and a certain time, and you get to the certain place at the certain time, and they're not there, and you wait, and you wait, and they don't text, and they don't call, and they don't text, and then finally you get a text like 45 minutes later that says something like their car broke down. And you're like, hmm, can I help? No. Where are you? doesn't matter. Like, hmm. You know, we, we live in a time, in a day, in an age where our technology can be used so quickly to lie. Right? Well, I'm just going to send them a text and tell them that I'm sick or class went long or I can come up with something that will allow me to stay in the situation that I'm in rather than move into relationship with that person over there. I'd rather just stay over here. What Paul is inviting us to do is say, are there people in your life who are moving you from life to death? And I'll tell you, you can't work on this passage for very long before you start to think, man, where am I messing up my friends? Am I the one who tells the crass jokes? Am I the one who's hot-tempered? How am I not helping my friends? If you look at this list, 
this first list here, this list of things that Paul's inviting us to move away from. And physics majors give me a little grace on this. But you can see in every one of these behaviors, there's this centripetal force that just pulls everything back into this person. Where this person who's listed in these things is very grabby, grabby toward people and their time and grabby toward things and wanting more and just sucking it all right into them. It's all about them. And those people can suck you in and they cannot let you go. It can be really hard to break free. And that's why it's so important for us to keep reading this passage. Because we need to have the courage that if we're the person who's sucking, that we can break free and start new behaviors and that if there's somebody else in our life that's doing that, that we can move toward them and start new behaviors. He says, look, you're being renewed, verse 10. You're being clothed yourself with knowledge. We renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. And that renewal, there's no longer Greek Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, don't get stuck. Don't be sitting out there right now thinking, I'm the one, it's me, I've got all the problems, I'm the centripetal force. He's like, wait, hang on, there's good news. You get renewed. As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, he gives us a fresh start. You get to clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now that's somebody you want to be friends with, right? These virtues, if the first list is centripetal force, sucking everybody in, this is centrifugal force, where the center of the person is so rooted and established in Jesus Christ that the energy that goes out from this person is just beautiful, and they're throwing out compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. So if the character test number one was about the golf, Neil's character test number two is after the golf, you take the person out for a meal and you watch how they treat the wait staff. If they are kind toward the wait staff, the odds are good they will eventually be kind toward you. If they treat the wait staff with disdain, that's not a good sign. One of the things, and I'm going to call him out a little bit, but one of the things that first drew me to my husband, among many other things, was on our first date, he picked up the name of our server, he called him by name, he asked him how his day was going, and I'm, of course, friends with Neil Planiga, I had the character test in my head, and I was like, <laughs> But when he checks out at Meyer, he, like, engages the cashier, he calls the cashier by name, they have a conversation, it makes me better. That's what you want in your friends. You want people who make you better. You want people who look into your life and you, you see them acting with compassion and you think, oh, I want to do that. You see them being humble in the face of some great victory and you think, oh, that is so attractive. You see them being kind to someone who does not deserve it. You think, oh, man, I want to be like that. That's the centrifugal force. It just goes out and it keeps going. 
When you get somebody who's settled and in their own skin and so rooted and established in Christ that this kind of stuff just flows out of them, if you get a friend like that, don't let them go. Don't let them go. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. And 13, bear with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgive each other. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. My colleague, Aaron Winkle, uh, who many of you know, he's our associate chaplain for upper-class students. And so part of his work has to do uh, with premarital counseling, and he's doing some of that right now with a few different couples. And we were talking about that uh, this week, and he said, one of the things that I say to every couple is that um, if you want a happy marriage, you need to learn how to forgive. He says, you can be married a long time without learning how to forgive, but if you want to be married for a happy time, you got to learn how to forgive. So he literally has couples practice saying these words to each other. I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Out loud in his office. He just, say it, say it. Because the, the default is like, I hurt you, and I'm sorry. But it wasn't because I was like, He's like, no, 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 I hurt you, period, and I'm sorry, period. So if you've been watching the Olympics, you know that they're talking a lot about wax. Just nod, just humor me. <laughs> they're talking a lot about wax, and they're talking about how good wax, particularly if you're a cross-country skier, you want to have a kind of wax that both slides and grips. You want to be slidey when it needs to be slidey, but then when you go up the hills, you do not want slidey, <laughs> right? Because that will be an issue. When you're going up the hills, you want grippy. You want grippy. And it takes, that's the technical term. <laughs> and it takes work because of the weather and the snow conditions, and is it sunny, and is it cloudy, and what kind of skis are these, to figure out the right kind of wax. Forgiveness is like wax for your friendships. Because if you get it down good, you are sliding along. You're like, we are good at forgiveness. We are good at forgiveness. And if you're really good at it, when you start to go uphill and the relationship gets a little shippy, the, for, the forgiveness part is the grippy part. It's like, we can get through the hill because we know how to forgive. It's going to take a little effort, but we can do it because we've got this wax of forgiveness that helps us glide along when things are going well. And when things get tough, we know how to forgive. And it's easy when it's February, and you're thinking, I only have to live with these people for a few more months to let things just kind of fester down there. We don't really have to deal with that problem. I'm just going to look the other way. I'm not going to pay attention. I'm not paying attention. I'm not paying attention. Oh, they're still doing it. <sighs> to be good at friendship, to be good at relationships, to be a human being before the face of God, we've got to be good at forgiveness. To be a Christian is to be a forgiver. Why do we forgive? It says it right there in the Bible. Because God in Christ has forgiven us. He has the best wax of all time. He's like, here, have some of my, my wax. This is going to help you out a lot. Learn how to do this. We had this this week. I was in a small group. Student A was complaining about student B because, not in our group, student B 
seemed to be acting irrationally and wasn't talking to student A, and student A couldn't quite figure it out, and he described the situation, and we said, well, maybe a little irrational. But then we said, student A, this is what you have to do. You have to say to student B, obviously I hurt you, and I'm sorry. And student A was like, but she's... Mm -mm. Mm. Obviously I hurt you, and I'm sorry. And student A was like, really? That's, that's it? He said, start there. We're waiting to see how it turns out, but the odds are really good it's going to work. <laughs> Obviously I hurt you, and I'm sorry. Now, when someone says that to you, what do you say back? I forgive you. You say it out loud in word form. I forgive you. Let's practice. Say, I forgive you. I forgive you. Not hard. When someone says to you, obviously, I hurt you and I'm sorry, you don't do this. <laughs> if someone is moving toward you with an apology, you meet them with the forgiveness. And if you have forgiven them, that does not mean that you get to bring it up. You've forgiven them. It's done. And you may have to work on this. This may take some time. It may like be a thing, but you're going to work. In fact, the verb here in the Greek is unceasing. It's like you forgive and you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. And commentators say what Paul is doing here is building on Jesus' words about forgiveness where he says, do you forgive seven times? No. You forgive how many times? Right? Which is an exaggeration. He's saying you just keep doing it. It becomes part of how you live in relationship. If you want to be a good friend, you learn how to apologize and you learn how to forgive. 14. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, agopic love here, the self-sacrificing love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to indeed you are called to one body and be thankful. It's easy to be around thankful people, isn't it? This whole week we spent in chapel, we were talking about gratitude and thankfulness. And on the first day, if you weren't here, go back and look at the archives because Dean Lloyd Page talked about everyday gratitude, just the little things. How when you get to the end of the day and you're able to name five things that you're thankful for, what happens when you wake up the next day? You start looking for those five things, right? And suddenly you become a person who's part of the centrifugal force, who's sending some good stuff out there. And you're like, you could say to a friend, hey, help me think of my five things. And it can't be like your friend every day. Today is Garrett, and tomorrow is Garrett, and Thursday I'm still thankful for Garrett. <laughs> May all be true, but let's diversify the portfolio a little bit. But if you want to be a good friend, shape your friend community to be grateful. It's easy to shape a community toward cynicism. It's easy to shape a little community toward complaining, right? It's very easy. Let's all have a gripe session now about our professors. Go! Let's have a gripe session about the weather. Go! What would it look like if we shaped our families, our little friend families, and said, we're going to be a community of gratitude? We're going to be marked by forgiveness. We're going to be marked by love. We're going to be marked by gratitude. It would change your house. It would change your apartment. It would change your floor. It would change this campus. Start tonight.
And then I love this last section, 16, 17. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your heart, sing psalm, hymns, spiritual songs to God. There's this, there's this sense of worship that comes when you're in a friendship group where everyone is helping each other move from deathly habits to life-giving habits. When you're moving from holding grudges to practicing forgiveness. When you're moving from cynicism toward gratitude. What happens is that you start to look at God, right? Do you remember what Nate said, Nate Glasper led our Friday, and he was talking about a member of his church who said, when I, I, when I think, I think. And when you're in a community, whether it's two or three or four or a floor, that's constantly working on these disciplines together, it's not so long before you just burst out in praise. Because when you start thinking about what God is doing in your life, you begin to praise God. Psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, you can't keep it inside. You're life-giving. So Paul says, whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So this is our invitation as you think about your friends. This is your invitation as you think about the type of friend you are. Are you someone who is helping your brothers and sisters move from death to life? Are you someone who is helping them move from impurity to purity, from anger to gentleness, from cynicism to gratitude? Are you that kind of person? And the beautiful thing is by the Spirit of God, we can be. That he's pulling all of us in and allowing us to be the people he wants us to be. That's the power of resurrection. That this renewal can happen. And for some of you, based on what we've been talking about tonight, you've got some hard choices to make. There are some people you hang out with, maybe not very often, Maybe just from time to time. But they're kind of stuck. They're stuck in the death circle. And you've got to decide. Are you going to stay with them? Here's the question to think about. Can God use you to influence these friends? and move them from death to life? And is that the invitation that he's giving you? Or is a truer assessment to say that right now, because of where you are spiritually and emotionally and mentally, that their influence is going to be on you to death? And you need to step out. It's hard to move away. The first step is the hardest, to say, no, I'm not coming tonight. I have other plans. I was talking with a student last fall, and during the first year, was involved in a lot of the same behaviors that this person had been involved with in high school. A lot of drinking, a lot of partying, 
And this person entered into their sophomore year and just kind of had this come to Jesus kind of moment, like, why am I still doing this? Like prodigal son in the pig pen moment, like, how is this helpful to me? You're like, my, my parents don't know that I'm doing it, so it's not like I'm rebelling against them because they have no clue. So that's not any fun, and I actually don't like how I feel the day after, and I'd actually like to remember things that happen at parties. And so this person completely changed their behavior, and you know how they did it? With a friend. This person found one other friend who had been engaged in the same behaviors and who was starting to feel uncomfortable about it and said to this person, instead of going to parties Friday night, you and me have a friend date. And they found a coffee shop that stays open until 2 in the morning, and that's where they go, the two of them, every Friday. And they have become deep and abiding friends because they made a friend date to say, I am going to help you and you're going to help me and we're going to move from death to life. If you have people in your life who move you from death to life, date them. (laughs) Make friendship dates. Why is it that we only make time for people of the opposite sex when we're dating them? And we're like, our friends are like, woo, bye-bye. What's that about? That's craziness. If you have friends whom you're never going to date, but they make your life richer and better, and they make you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and if they do that on a repeated basis, take them out for coffee and thank them. Tell them that. Make a date, you, me, lunch, every Wednesday. If you have a friend that you value, date your friend. Get to know your friend. Invest in that friendship because God wants our friendships to flourish. God knows that the best way to inhabit a community is to inhabit one friendship group at a time and then it spreads and it grows and it changes a world. If you have people who move you from death to life, Date them, spend time with them, hang out with them, and tell them, tell them, you make a difference in my life. Thank you. And I know for some of you right now, you're like, oh, that's way too touchy-feely for me. I'm not doing that. I'm not, dude, I'm not saying that. (laughs) That's the kind of stuff that moves you from death to life. Being vulnerable, saying, you matter to me. That's the kind of stuff that moves us from the superficial to the real. You can write them a note if you can't say it out loud. But tell them. The Lord has used you in my life in this way, and I'm so grateful. Friends are a gift from God to you. And I don't know what the rest of your life is going to look like. I don't know if you're going to marry or not marry. I'm going to know if you have children or not have children. But the one constant you can have through a lot of your life is a really good friend or two. So if you've got that person or you've got a couple people, invest in them. And I know some of you are sitting here right now and you're like, man, I wish I had a friend. 
When I was in Bible study this week with the faculty women that I meet with, and we were talking about this sermon, one of them said to me, Mayor, you got to tell them that they can pray for friends. She said, when I started graduate school, I knew it was much more easy for me to hang out with the guys and be superficial and that I would get in trouble. So I prayed for God to send me specifically a female friend who would help me stay out of trouble. And she said, and God answered. And it wasn't the person I expected. In fact, the first time we met, we didn't like each other. And then we ended up being the only people awake on this long bus trip back from somewhere. And we started talking. And I realized that God had answered my prayer. I had found my friend. God wants our friendships to flourish. So if you want a Christian friend who's going to help move you from death to life, pray for it. And ask other people to pray for it. Don't be ashamed to pray for it. Because our Lord wants to move us from death to life. And that's what we see most clearly at the table, don't we? That the one who loves you wants to move you from death to life. And one of the ways he does that is he uses our friends to call us on stuff that's going to kill us and to celebrate in stuff that gives us life. And the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after he blessed God, he broke it. said, this bread is my body given for you. Do this to remember me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after he blessed God, he poured it and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it to remember me. So as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. you pray with me? God, our Father, we give you praise and thanks that you knew it was not good for us to be alone. And so you created other human beings who laugh at the goofy things we laugh at, who love the silly things we love, who draw us more and more into loving you. Thank you for being the creator of friends. Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, we thank you for giving us an image of what it looks like to be a good friend, to be compassionate and kind meek and humble, to forgive, to forgive, to forgive. We thank you, Jesus Christ, that you are the one who redeems. Some of us have had painful friendships, and you redeem them by teaching us things about ourselves, teaching us paths that we are on toward death and moving us toward life. Holy Spirit, we give you praise that you are in this feast with us. 
and that you animate us to seek out good friends and to say goodbye to the ones who are leading us into death, that you give us that courage. We pray that as we take this cup and this bread, that you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will nourish us by it and give us the courage to be good friends and to love deeply and well as you have loved us. We pray this through Jesus. Amen.